welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined by a historian from the Joseph Smith Papers, Robin Jensen. Welcome, Robin. It's good to be here. Also joining us again is our good friend, Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Today we're going to be talking about two chapters, and admittedly these are a couple of heavy ones, Robin. This is chapter 44 and 45. Let's just jump right in. Um, We learned in our last episode that the Nauvoo City Council had passed a resolution to destroy the Nauvoo Expositor. Yeah. It seems to me that they have underestimated the backlash. What's your thought about that? Yeah, you know, um, destroying newspapers in the 19th century was not unheard of. It happened. I think the Mormons, to their credit, tried to make it a legal action. Usually this was done through vigilante mobs and whatnot, but uh, the high council, or the Nauvoo City Council, they really debated and, and kind of weighed their options. And they went forward um, trying to do the best they could. But I do think that they uh, underestimated the strong reaction against this this activity. We have the Warsaw Signal and their call to arms and people are gathering in Carthage. What do we know about, um, there's a new governor in Illinois, Thomas Ford. What was his position in trying to prevent the violence that the saints had experienced in Missouri? Yeah, Missouri uh, is still relatively fresh, uh, and as governor, you're not going to want violence erupting in your state. I mean, that's just bad PR. Uh, it's it's not good. You have to focus on that. So I do think that Thomas Ford uh, was mindful of the, the problems that arose in, in the past, and I think he was doing his best to um, make this problem go away um, in uh, a peaceful manner, and as we'll see, that did not happen. So there, there are crowds that are sort of militia groups and, and such marching and threatening to come to Nauvoo. There's a scene in the book where Joseph calls out the Nauvoo militia. They, they put the city under uh, military rule. And uh, let's just listen to a little clip here from the book that kind of sets the, the tone of what's happening. Drawing his sword and raising it to the sky, Joseph urged the men to defend the liberties that had been denied them in the past. Will you all stand by me to the death, Joseph asked, and sustain at the peril of your lives the laws of our country? I roared the crowd. I love you with all my heart, he said. You have stood by me in the hour of trouble, and I am willing to sacrifice my life for your preservation. What do you think about that, Sarah? I mean, this is the prophet. He's speaking to them, but he's speaking to them as the militia commander. I think that that is just pretty incredible and another testament to Joseph Smith's courage and to his dedication, of course, to this church and to the people who were willing to act as disciples as well. I mean, it was I could never have acted that way, so I'm very impressed and inspired. This is kind of a military moment. I mean, it's, it's a little scary. Yeah, we sometimes envision the time just before Carthage as this peaceful moment. We may have even seen scenes in, in you know, movies or whatnot where 
Joseph is uh, walking to Carthage and things are kind of peaceful. It, it was a fairly tense time. The Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo were nervous. Uh, they, they were very well aware that there was a growing antagonism towards them as a, as a group. Help us with the timeline just a little bit. So I think because my mind, I forget things, you know, like normally what I think is, okay, the newspaper is destroyed. Like two days later, Joseph Smith is up in the jail and then the martyrdom happens. There's a, there's a bit more time. And at one point, Joseph even leaves. He heads across the river. Is that right? Yeah. And, and what's, what do we know about that experience? Uh, you know, I actually wish we knew a little bit more. Um, Joseph Smith, um, I think, recognized that the mob activity, the antagonism towards Mormons were directed at him. And so I think he believed that if he could get away, that that would settle things a little bit so that there wasn't this uh, fever pitch for violence. And so he was going to go to maybe Washington, D.C. and seek uh, help outside of Illinois or maybe go out west to just have things settle down. But uh, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we do know that he's trying to defuse the situation by removing himself from the situation. So he, he goes across the river, right, to yep. on the Iowa side. Porter Rockwell comes, and he has a letter from Emma. Let's listen to a little clip here from, from the book about this. Before Porter left... Joseph gave him a letter for Emma, instructing her to sell their property if necessary to support herself, the children, and his mother. Do not despair, he told her. If God opens a door that is possible for me, I will see you again. Kind of sounds like to me from that letter, like he's, he's not coming back. Yeah, uh, that was a real possibility. Uh, Joseph Smith spent six months in Liberty Jail. I think we have to put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, Emma was very aware that she could lose her husband, and she ultimately did. But him leaving uh, across the river, going to parts unknown, must have been quite troubling for Emma and the Latter-day Saints. There's a a famous quote uh, that I had heard before. I didn't know quite the context Emma sent, sends other letters to Joseph, and essentially there are people who are calling him a coward for fleeing. And Joseph says, uh, this is a quote, I will die before I will be called a coward, Joseph said. If my life is of no value to my friends, it is none to myself. So he, he's resigned now and decides, I'm coming back. Yeah, and this is a time when to be called a coward was pretty bad. Uh, uh, culture really valued honor and whatnot. And so if, if you wanted to get in trouble, you would call someone a coward. And Joseph Smith, up until his death, was really focusing on building relationships, uh, sealing these relationships forever. And so I think that quote has double meaning if you remember that he's trying to build these earthly relationships into heaven. Right. And he wants to preserve those. When Joseph comes back to Nauvoo, he disarms the Nauvoo Legion. Okay, I don't get it. <laughs> like they're under attack. Why is he? Why does he do this? I think it's a sign, a, a sign for the governor and for others that uh, there's a good faith effort that the Mormons do not want to retaliate. They they don't want to engage. They've undergone this in Missouri. They've had battles in Missouri, and, and they want to show that they are ultimately a peace seeking people. And I think very few other actions could speak that as loud as disarming the the legion. And then Governor Ford actually comes to town. Right, and he, he sort of marches through town on Main Street. He's got a, a group of soldiers with him. The book 
tells us that some of the soldiers were sort of brandishing their swords and trying to frighten the onlookers. This is just bizarre. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to me. Can you imagine a governor of a state like marching with armed guards yelling at the townspeople? This is just so weird. Yeah, it, it, it's quite the contrast, actually, between the saints' good faith effort in disarming it and Governor Ford coming in and telling the Mormons how awful they are and they brought this upon themselves, essentially. And it's not a good move if you're focusing just on the Latter-day Saints. I think he may have been upping the rhetoric just a bit for the surrounding areas to show the non-Mormons in Hancock County that he is not a pushover when it comes to uh, the Mormons themselves. Well, then we move to the really the darkest hour of this of our story and of this time in church history. Joseph gives himself up. Even that, I think readers, I was surprised. I don't know, Sarah, were you surprised to know that Joseph gave himself up, heads to Carthage, then comes back to Nauvoo, says goodbye to the family again, then goes back to Carthage? Like, Yeah, I wasn't aware of that sequence of events. I had pictured it differently, so I was glad for that clarification. Well, Mike, you said the, we see a movie, and, and it's sort of this serene on a horseback, you know, a, a lamb to the slaughter, which we have record of Joseph saying. Yeah. But he said that, then he had to come back yeah, and then head back up to the Carthage. Yeah, it's this double farewell that, on the one hand, it's nice that you get to see your family again, but uh, doubly painful to realize that this is a long, drawn-out uh, farewell. That, that must have been super hard for him to, to come back and say goodbye twice. Sarah, I wonder if, if you might just recount for our listeners the martyrdom. What happened there in Carthage jail? So Joseph um, and Hiram and several others are taken to jail. And um, one evening, as we've learned in the book, they hear a bit of, of noise. So Robin, could you tell us more about that scene before the day that they were all martyred? Yeah, so there's this uh, commotion. They hear a, a gunshot. They hear um, several people going into the building. Tensions are, of course, high, um, and so they're trying to get some sleep. And uh, Joseph Smith and and others are, you know, looking out the window, seeing what's going on. But then there's this uh, important scene, uh, really quite uh, memorable, I'm sure, for uh, one of the individuals, Dan Jones. He's um, laying there next to Joseph. They have this conversation, and we don't know everything they say, but I can only imagine that they're fearful, that they're wondering what's going on, that maybe Dan Jones is afraid for his life. And Joseph Smith there, uh, clear to the very end, is is a prophet. He prophesies that, Dan Jones, you will eventually see the day when you return to your home country in Wales to preach the gospel. And that must have been a great comfort to Dan Jones and and maybe others who overheard the conversation. Wow. And at what point did Joseph have the opportunity to bear testimony to the guards? I thought that was an interesting Yeah, so um, he, he was there in, in prison. They had guards. Uh, periodically, the governor would kind of parade them about. And through that uh, opportunity, guards were kind of uh, insulting him and, and whatnot. But he still found opportunities to testify to the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's set in the kind of, the, you know, context of the of the prison and, and surrounded by guards. Y- you could maybe justify Joseph Smith not being a member missionary, <laughs> so to speak. But no, he, he was to his literally very last day just testifying to the truthfulness of the work that he had done. That's really incredible. So after the this first experience and the, uh, they hear the men and, and they eventually go away, of course the mob comes back. They've painted their faces to obscure their identities. They rush the stairway. 
the familiar scene of the ball coming through the door and hitting Hiram, and John Taylor is shot. Um, Dan Jones makes it out unscathed. So Dan Jones and, and there's a few others leave that morning, um, and then by the afternoon there's only four there in the, in the jail. So Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, John Taylor, and Willard Richards. Okay. And the fact that Willard Richards escaped, um, he's one of the biggest guys in the room, and so he... He had a bullet graze his ear, but yeah, he escaped miraculously when everyone else was uh, either killed or wounded significantly in the case of John Taylor. When it becomes apparent that they're not going to be able to beat down the rifles poking through the door and the, the pistols that are being shot, Hiram is already dead. Joseph makes a run for the, the window he's shot multiple times. He exclaims, "Oh Lord, my God, falls." to his death outside of Carthage jail. Robin, how does this news reach Nauvoo? And all the apostles are scattered all over the place. Can you help us understand a little bit about what happens next? Yeah, I think for those that have grown up in the church or know about the church, they they know the end from the beginning. They know how Joseph Smith's life uh, ends. So we we really need to imagine uh, ourselves in their shoes. And this was just shocking news. Uh, they knew that tensions were high, um, but this was the prophet that they had known for the last, you know, since their conversion. Um, people did not know Mormonism outside of being led by Joseph Smith. And so word uh, reached um, Nauvoo. There were uh, several letters, several messengers. Uh, in fact, Willard Richards and John Taylor signed a letter um, that night talking about the news. I've seen that letter, and it's a piece of history. Sometimes we hear these narratives, but we forget that history is created, made up from uh, pieces of documents. And this document is just so remarkable. It's so short. It says, Joseph and Hiram are dead. John Taylor is shot. I'm okay. And it just, uh, Willard Richards actually calls for peace. Don't retaliate. Um, he's, he's reminding the saints that to lead a Christian life means to turn the other cheek. And I think that that's a tall order. That, that's a big ask for the Latter-day Saints who had their prophet and patriarch killed. There's a, a quote here in the, in the book about the Nauvoo City Marshal, John Green. He, he hears Emma crying, and he goes in to comfort her, um, and he says you know, something to the effect of, your, your affliction will be a crown in heaven. And she says, my husband was my crown. Why, oh God, am I thus deserted? Like th- This is just pain. And then there's another scene um, where, where Lucy, Lucy says, let, let's, in fact, let's listen to this one from the book. Lucy was so overwhelmed by the sadness around her that she could not speak. My God, she prayed silently. Why hast thou forsaken this family? Memories of her family's trials flooded her mind, but as she looked on her son's lifeless faces, they appeared peaceful. She knew Joseph and Hiram were now beyond the reach of their enemies. I have taken them to myself, she heard a voice say, that they might have rest. This is just, it's sad. I mean, I, I love Lucy, and uh, I, I've, I've grown to know her, and throughout as we've read this book, and it's just painful to hear those words. But also, I guess, I'm inspired to know that she heard the Lord comforting her. I think that it's incredible to see the way that following the Savior, following Jesus Christ and living his gospel, 
doesn't always necessarily lead to happy or easy experiences. In fact, a lot of these saints in the book have experienced terrible things like, for example, this martyrdom of husbands and sons. But of course, Heavenly Father is there and his perspective is greater than ours. And so it's just interesting to read these stories where you realize that the way is hard, but you don't have to walk alone. It's That being said, I can't imagine the pain that they would have felt in this experience. Letters are sent because we have to always remind ourselves, this is not like pick up a cell phone and, and send a quick text to the apostles. Yeah. It takes days and weeks for the information to reach many of the apostles who are serving on missions. Brigham Young kind of hears some rumors, and then eventually a letter arrives. Yep. He says something about he felt like his head would crack. Yeah, yeah. He, he was worried about the administration of the church. What, how, how does the church move forward? Uh, again, the church only knows leadership through Joseph Smith, uh, and Brigham Young reminisces, rem- remembers, he was so worried, and then almost immediately he received the revelation. He remembered, no, the keys are still with us. The keys are here uh, in the kingdom. He slaps his knee and says, yeah, we, he gave us the keys. Yeah. It, it kind of reminded me of, the apostles of old, you know, Christ taught them, I'm going away, and they kind of didn't get it. And then later they were like, oh, that's what he meant. Brigham has that moment where he realizes that Joseph has given them the keys. Even with that, there is something that scholars have termed the succession crisis. Yeah. What does that mean? Who was vying for leadership in the church? And can you kind of summarize what happened and who the players were? Yeah, so there's actually a number of uh, individuals, organizations, and it's not just in 1844, but it, it goes on for uh, many years. But uh, as the book addresses, there are um, Sidney Rigdon, who was a member of the First Presidency, really desired to, uh, and I think it's a desire from uh, from a good place. He's, he's trying to lead the, the church. Here are the uh, saints that he, he knows and loves and has served for a long time. He doesn't agree with some of the activities of the Quorum of the Twelve and others, and he wants to uh, lead the church in a manner that he sees fit, that will take it in a direction that he thinks makes the most sense. What he doesn't realize or what he doesn't acknowledge is that Joseph Smith, shortly before his death, uh, several years before his death, introduced uh, several new uh, revelations, concepts, uh, keys with sealing power and and, uh, temple ceremonies, and Sidney Rigdon was not part of this, yeah, or, he, or he didn't our, receive the fullness of, of that. Our listeners will remember we've talked about the anointed quorum and the in- introduction of the endowment, as well as plural marriage in Nauvoo, and, and Sidney's really out of the loop on all yeah. of that. If not, if he was aware, he certainly didn't support it. Yeah, yeah. And so here we have kind of a showdown, essentially, between Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young. And it started am- amicably. Uh, Rigdon and Young had had a long time uh, serving with one another, but it eventually came to a head, uh, and the church voted uh, formally to follow Brigham Young. Let's listen to a little clip here from from the book that describes this meeting where the vote was taken. As Emily listened to Brigham speak, she caught herself glancing up at him to make sure it was not Joseph speaking. He had Joseph's expressions— his method of reasoning, and even the sound of his voice. Brother Joseph, the prophet, has laid the foundation for a great work, and we will build upon it, Brigham continued. There is an almighty foundation laid, and we can build a kingdom such as there never was in the world. 
we can build a kingdom faster than Satan can kill the saints off. So the saints vote and they accept Brigham. This, as you mentioned, it doesn't really end the some of those seeking for leadership or, or have who have different opinions. There's William Law, Sidney Rigdon. The book mentions another another fellow by the name of James Strang. Yeah, he's he's kind of uh, one of those that not many people have heard about. In fact, this has a family connection for myself. Uh, growing up, I hadn't heard of him. Uh, and then I did, I, I started to do some research and I found out that my great-great-grandfather joined James Strang for a time. And when I first read that, I thought to myself, oh no, I have an apostate in the family. <laughs> this, this was kind of a, a, a sad time for, for my family tree. And then as I did more study with uh, Strang and with um, this man named William Kaepner, I realized that William Kaepner, my great-great-grandfather, wanted to practice Mormonism. He believed in, in the truths that were espoused in Mormonism. And he didn't always know where that was. Uh, there was a time of confusion after Joseph Smith's death. Uh, there were several people, particularly in uh, places outside of Nauvoo, who said, you know, Brigham Young, he's, he's not the leader for you. Let me tell you about this individual named James String. And uh, my great-great-grandfather listened, uh, saw in Strang's teaching some familiar things uh, about Mormonism, and he began serving a mission. Uh, now, he ultimately realized that Strang was not the true successor, and he came out west to Utah, followed Brigham Young. But as I um, looked at uh, this story, I, I realized that those who did not follow Brigham Young were not entirely rejecting Mormonism. They were trying to embrace a form of Mormonism that they recognized. And sometimes they didn't see that in Brigham Young, at least not immediately in some cases. And so individuals like William Kaepner expressed their faith in ways that we don't recognize, but we do have to remember that, yeah, they were trying to practice what they believed. And I would just invite our listeners to go to saints.lds.org where you can click through to the topics. You can also get there in the church history section of your Gospel Library app. You'll find a topic there called Other Latter-day Saint Movements, and it will uh, explain, if this is new to you as it was to many of us, some of the other Latter-day Saint movements that happened uh, around the time of Joseph Smith's death. Um, you can read about them there, and there are links to some really incredible resources where you can you can go and and uh, explore as much as as much as you have time to do. So there's a an event in this chapter that I hadn't known about before, and that was uh, that Emma requested a blessing from Joseph before he left for uh, jail, and of course he wouldn't return. I think this was when they were saying goodbye for the second time, and he told her that he didn't have time for this blessing. Right? Tell us more about how that turned out. Yeah, so uh, Emma, uh, perhaps sensing the seriousness of the of what was going on, requested a blessing from, from her husband. And Joseph said he didn't have time, but he said, you write a blessing for yourself, and when I get back, I'll sign it. And so we have this blessing. And as a historical aside, I wish we had the original blessing. All we have is a transcript. But uh, this blessing speaks to, I think, Emma's fears, her concerns, her desires to follow her husband, even though she, in the last two or three years, had kind of a hard time doing that. Wow, that's really just a heartbreaking story and uh, also a testament to her dedication to the church. 
when I read the words in the book, it's a little bit of a conciliatory voice. It feels like to me, like yeah. she's saying, Heavenly Father, I will do anything. I will follow him wherever he goes, please, you know. I, in a way, that gives me some comfort because, I, you know, I want Joseph and Emma to be happy. I want them, they're, they're sealed. I want them to be content with each other. And I, I just think it's an interesting moment that Emma writes this blessing, and unfortunately, you know, this is sort of the last communication between her and, and uh, the prophet. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Robin, for being here. It's and my pleasure. Sharing with us some of these fascinating details about the succession as well as uh, the martyrdom. These are some difficult times, and we appreciate your perspectives in helping us better understand. I invite our listeners to visit saints.lds.org where you can learn more. You can check out the topics, videos. You can always subscribe to this podcast at mormonchannel.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. 